chapter 19, verses 21 through 22. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I've been super eager to be with you guys this this morning, just looking forward to, to open up the Word of God together and, and to see what He'll accomplish as He speaks to us uh, through His Word. So I'm just I'm just grateful to be able to to be with you guys each each week. Um, so hey, just to catch you up to speed, we are in part three this morning, part three in this series that we're calling Four Liberating Truths. Four liberating truths. And what we're doing throughout this series is that we're, we're, we're looking at the scriptures together. We're looking at the scriptures together and considering what are four foundational, four liberating truths that we as Christians should be preaching to ourselves. What are four biblical gospel truths that we should be preaching to ourselves on a regular basis. And the reason that we're, we're talking about this concept of preaching to ourselves is because beneath all of our sinful behavior, beneath all of our negative, uh, sort of ungodly, unbecoming emotions, uh, there's always some lie that we're believing about God. Underneath all our sinful behavior, there's some lie that we're believing about God. And so the big reason that we need to preach to ourselves is because we're prone to think with our feelings rather than with our minds and the truth of God's word. And when we do that, the truth of who God is isn't actually bearing weight on how we live. Rather like our feelings are, right? Uh, to use last week in this example, last week we talked about the fear of man. You guys remember that? Um, hopefully you do, right? Last week we talked about the fear of man. Like when we are feeling fearful, when we're feeling fearful about the disapproval of others more than we're, we fear the disapproval of God, then what we're actually doing in that moment, what we're, our functional belief in that moment is that God is not worthy of glory and that these other people are. See, our belief... Our belief affects our, our behavior. What you believe about God and who affects like who you are at, at a deep level. It affects how you will act. And so what we need to do is we need to discern what are the lies that we're believing? What are the lies that we're believing? And then we need to turn to the truth of what God says. So we need to preach to ourselves. We need to discipline of preaching to ourselves. And so we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about how it's like, you know, it's one thing to sort of intellectually believe a truth about God. Like, it's one thing to intellectually believe the truth that God is glorious, but it's entirely something else to actually functionally believe that truth, where we actually live that out where it changes the way that you act and you live. And so the big idea for us is that we need to preach gospel truth to ourselves. We need to be tr preaching the truth of God's word to ourselves. And the four liberating truths about God that we're walking through, these are truths about who he is and what he's done and what he is doing. And these truths are better than the lies that we tend to believe ourselves otherwise. You tracking? So the first week, we looked at uh, our first liberating truth, which is that God is great, and so then I don't have to be in control. He's great, he's sovereign, so I don't have to be in control. And then last week, we looked at the fact that God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. 
We don't have to fear others or seek their approval. And today, this morning, we're going to look at this liberating truth that God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. I don't have to look elsewhere other than God to feel satisfied. And so we've got these three points we're going to sort of walk through today. Um, What is the root of our dissatisfaction, first of all? Secondly, the functional saviors that we turn to. And lastly, the liberating effects of the truth that God is good. Uh, And so we don't have to look elsewhere. Uh, So let's look at that first one, the root of our um, dissatisfaction. Um, Turn to Genesis 1. With me. Uh, It'll also be up on the screen, but if you're looking at a Bible, it'll probably be on page one. Um, But in Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, uh, it says this It says that God created man, that's us, He created mankind, He created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. And then God blessed them. God blessed Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and also over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that that moves on the earth. And then in verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, including mankind. He saw everything he'd made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. So right here in Genesis 1, right here, we see that in the beginning, God made humans. He made Adam and Eve. He made our our first parents. He made humans in his image and in his likeness. And when he made us, we see there in verse 28, when he made us, he wired us. He formed and fashioned us to do two things. He made us to do two things. First, he, we were made to worship and serve God, right? We were made to worship and serve God. And secondly, we were made to rule over, to exercise dominion over creation. So we were made to worship and serve God, the creator, but we were also made to rule over and exercise dominion over creation, over created things, to be God's stewards over creation, over his good creation. You see that right there? Theologians call this the cultural mandate. It's the, the, the culture, like the very reason that mankind was created. And that right there is the actual, like, that's the actual good life that we long for, right? Like, is to do this, is to worship God and to serve him and, uh, and to exercise dominion over creation. Like, that's the good life. That's a true definition of the good life. It is a good life that we were created for. It's a good life that we all long for. And so what happened to the good life? What happened to the good life that we were given in Genesis 1 and 2? You see, just two more chapters after Genesis 1, just two more chapters in, and we touched on this a little bit last week, didn't we? But just two chapters, two more chapters in, and we see that our first parents, Adam and Eve, the first humans, what happened is they rebel against God. They fall into sin. And the result of that... The result of sin's effect on the human heart and on the world at large is that now everything gets flipped on its head. 
It reverses the intended purpose that God made us for. So instead of humans worshiping and serving God and ruling over created things, now because of sin, we worship and serve created things, and now they have a grip on our hearts. You see, it's been subverted. So God created us in the most beautiful way. He created us full of glory and full of potential, but we rebelled, we rebelled, and it's all like subverted now. And so what I want you to notice is that the first thing, like what, what is the first thing that Satan attacked in the garden? If you're familiar with the story in Genesis 3, the first thing that the serpent, that Satan attacked in the garden was the goodness of God. That was the first thing he attacked. He says, hey, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Remember, long before sin is a behavior problem, it's a belief problem, right? Long before sin is a behavior problem, it's a belief problem. Satan knew that if he wanted us to rebel against God, then he would first have to get us to believe a lie about God. The lie is that God is... God is not good. That's the lie. God is either not good or he's good, but there's something else that's good that he's holding out on us, right? God's holding out something from us that, that, that is truly good. That's the big lie that we believe. That's the big lie that they believe. They believe that they needed to seek something other than what they were given, other than God. They needed to seek something other than God, other than what they were given in order to feel satisfied. But like, what, what a wild assertion that is, right? What a wild assertion that is, that there's something to satisfy us outside of, outside of God. But man, like, we do the same thing. We've been doing the same thing ever since. You see, the root of our dissatisfaction, the root of our dissatisfaction is whenever we turn anywhere else other than God to make sense of what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful in our broken world. You see, that's the root of our dissatisfaction. It's whenever we turn anywhere else other than, other than God to make sense of what is true, good, and beautiful in this broken world. If we look somewhere else for our satisfaction, that just will lead us to dissatisfaction. That makes sense? And so we, like, we have what I call these like if-only statements, right? Like Even as Christians, we have these if-only statements. Like, if only I had a different job, right? If only I had a different job, then my life will be complete. If only I wasn't single, then my life would feel whole. If only I had this much money in my, in my bank account, or if you're a student, if I had this GPA, right? If only my kids weren't so disrespectful. If only I had one more drink, one more shot. If only my sexual desires were met, then, then I'd feel satisfied. Then I'd feel truly satisfied. Another way we can phrase the question is, what do you turn to when you're feeling like the goodness of God is not enough? Like, what is that thing? What is the thing that you're prone to turn to when you're feeling like the goodness of God is not satisfying? Like God is not enough. Where do you turn when God is not enough for you in like this ultimate satisfying way? 
Whatever your answer to that question is, that is the thing that you truly worship. That is the thing that you functionally worship. Like, you might, you might believe that God is ultimately the one worthy of worship, but if there's something else that you turn to, if there's something else that you need, then in your heart of hearts, you've got to admit that that is really the thing that you are functionally worshiping. You see, we were made to worship. God created us to worship. He made us to know, to enjoy, to serve him, to worship him. Look, we're all wired to worship something. Every single one of us, we don't have a choice whether we get to worship or not. Like even the most staunch, God-hating atheist out, out there like worships, right? Like just, just the, the most staunch, God-hating atheist worships, he or she just, just worships like human intellect instead, right? Which makes, really, at, at the end of the day, that makes a terrible God. Like, see, you can't help but worship. You were created. You were built. You were formed, fashioned, designed to worship something. It's built into us. We were, we're more wired to worship than our lungs are wired to breathe. It's just the fiber of our being. The human heart was made to worship something outside of itself. It's constantly looking for something to, to delight in. It's constantly looking for a place to rest, for an object or person to hope in. And the scriptures teach us that we'll either look to God or we'll look to something else or someone else to make, to give us that sense of feeling where we feel significant, we feel secure, we feel at peace, we feel hopeful. And so whatever or whoever that is, that is what you worship. That is what you will drive your emotions, what will drive your, your thoughts and your behavior. And that is where you truly find your satisfaction. But the scriptures tell us that anything that we turn to outside of God will just leave us empty. It'll leave us empty. You guys remember a few weeks ago when we were preaching on John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, right? Like, like she, uh, Jesus is saying that, that look, the, the kind of water, the spiritual living water that he provides is the kind that makes, you, makes it so that you never spiritually thirst again. And the other point he's making on the other side of that coin is that anywhere else you go will leave you thirsty again. It'll only leave you empty. So now let's talk about the functional saviors that we turn to. The functional saviors that we turn to. How do we know what our functional saviors are? The things that we're turning to. David Powelson, he's this biblical counselor on the East Coast. He wrote this nice little book called Seeing with New Eyes. Basically, like, how do, how do we see the world through new eyes, through the eyes of the scriptures? And in this book, he's got this one really helpful chapter where he, he walks through what he calls these x-ray questions. Right? These questions that just kind of see through and cut to the heart, questions that will help us discern and see and acknowledge what are the false saviors that we're putting our trust into. And here I just want to read some of these X-ray questions to you. And, and as, I'm, as I'm going through them, I, I want you to seriously consider them. Like consider what is your answer to these questions. Here's a few of them. He says, Here's how you know what your, what your functional savior is. First, what is the one thing that you worry about the most? The one thing that is the greatest source of your anxiety and your worry. What is the one thing that you worry about the most? Or you can ask, what do I rely on or comfort myself with when things get hard? 
What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things get hard? When no one's looking? What is it that, that, here's another question, what is it that preoccupies my mind? The thing that we daydream about. In other words, when you're, when you're like alone and you have the time, like where is it that your heart tends to wander to? Or how about this? What prayer, what prayer if left unanswered would make me seriously like doubt my faith? The one thing I'm asking for, the thing that I've longed for, what prayer, what desire that I've cried out to God for, if in his wisdom, beyond my understanding, if for whatever reason, if he was left unanswered, it would cause me to seriously doubt my my faith. Or how how about, what what is it that gives me the most sense of self-worth? Where is it that I find my worth, my identity? What is that one thing that you want to be known for that you make sure, you know, people know about this when you start a new conversation with them, right? Like, what is it that gives you the most self-worth? You see, and there's a lot of different common answers that, that we might have to these questions. And I hope that, as, I'm, that as, I've, as I've asked you those questions, that you have at least one thing that pops out into your mind. And what I want to to happen between now and through the end of this is that in our time of God's word together, that you'll see, man, this thing is not satisfying, but God is. This thing is not good, but God is ultimately good. And so we have these several common answers to these questions that I want to go over just uh, a few, some of like our, our most common, really we could call them idols, right? The things that we worship. Our most common functional saviors. What are a few of these? And we'll just flesh them out to see how, how gripping they are. Um, and I'm taking these from, from First John 2, 16. Um, it won't be on the screen, but I'll read it to you. First John 2.16, which says that everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so if we're not finding our satisfaction in God, we're finding our satisfaction in other things. It's because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And so here's the first false savior I want us to consider. Uh, and that's the worship of comfort, the lust of the flesh, the worship of comfort. You see, if you worship comfort, that's when you define the good life as not, not as a life that's fully satisfied in God, but rather in experiencing like a certain pleasure, experiencing a certain pleasure or enjoying a certain quality of life, right? This is, if you worship comfort, like this is someone who just, they just want to feel good, Right? You want to feel free. You want to feel good. And so, like, if like anyone has some type of, like, food disorder or, like, a drug abuse or alcohol abuse, like self-medicating, you're driven by the idol worship of comfort. Often, our, our secret, like, sexual sins are driven by this worship of comfort. I've, I've canceled like a lot of guys over the years who are just like, 
just hardcore, like addicted to pornography. And almost always, almost in every situation, you can trace the moment that this became this, this gripping habit of theirs. You can trace the moment that this became a gripping habit of theirs to some area of discomfort in their life. Like, man, I, I just feel like my life is out, out of control. Like there's, there's this, 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 this debt that I'm, 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 I'm struggling with, right? Like I, I just feel like I, I can never pay it off or, or, or they're just unhappy in their, in their marriage or in their, their relationship or in their singleness, right? Like dissatisfied with a job, right? That's always some type of discomfort that, that, that will spew them onto this. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't in any way to say, um, hey, blame it on those things. Right? Remember, we talked a few weeks ago that like sometimes we blame like our sin on our circumstances when really what it is, the circumstances just kind of jolt us to reveal the sin that was already there inside of us. And so when we're feeling like this discomfort, like out of control, what happens is we turn to fleeting pleasures that last this quick moment, but they ultimately don't satisfy. And so that's why you come back to it again and again and again. And the next thing you know, like it's this sinful habit, it's this addiction that you can't that you can't shake. You see, only God is truly good. Only God is truly satisfying. And when we've embraced that, when we've embraced the fact that in Christ that we have him, the fountain of living waters, that he, when we've embraced the fact that he is all good and all satisfying, then we don't need to go anywhere else for our comfort. Another common idol we turn to is, 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 is power, the worship of, of, of power, of, of ambition. Um, in, in 1 John 2, it's, it's called the pride of life. The worship of power. This is when life is, when we see life is meaningful and satisfying, like only when, like when you have power and when you have influence over, over somebody. Right? Um, over others. Like you, you, you could say it's like when basically you want to be somebody, right? That's the pride of life. That's the worship of power. You want to, to be somebody. And so we impose this on, 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 on other people. We try to, to have power over others. We influence over others. We'll do it over family members. Man, parents can be awful at this, especially when their kids are at a young age, right? Like they took to their kids to determine, to help make sure that like, hey, if I, if I can get my, if I can have so, like enough power and influence over my children to where if they respect me in the right way, if they respond to me in the right way, then I'll feel satisfied. And if they don't do that, then my sense of identity and being and value is just like all over the place, right? There's this great philosopher of the the 80s and 90s, this musician by the name of Madonna, um, <laughs> who um, in a roundabout way confessed her struggle with worshiping the idol of power. In an interview, uh, in a magazine interview, she said, I have an iron will. I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. And so I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as this special human being and then I get to another stage and I think, all of a sudden, I think again, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And she confesses, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And, and that's what's pushing me. 
That's what's pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. So what, 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 what she's getting at, what this music star is getting at is like, look, as long as we're being driven by idols, as long as we're looking for our rest in these other false saviors, like we'll never truly find rest. Because our idols, our functional saviors, were never, don't have enough goodness and glory to actually bear the weight of the pressure that we impose on them. They'll leave us wanting. We'll never find that rest that we're looking for. You might not be looking for power through this rock star lifestyle like Madonna is, but you might be looking for it when you're around others in your workplace, the status that you have in your workplace or in your home or amongst your friends. But those things will just keep us wanting. The early church father, Augustine, he said it like like this. He says, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. If you've ever felt restless, like you're, you're, you're working towards things, and even when you get them, you're still feeling restless, perhaps, Augustine would say, it's because you have not found your rest in God. Power, the pride of life, will not satisfy us. The third idol I want us to look at is success. Come a nuance from power. Success, that really has to do with like money, having, all, having stuff, having money, uh, and saying that these things are better and more satisfying, right? The lust of the eyes, that's what it is in 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes. And if we worship success, then what we're saying is that, is that look, the, the appearance of, of success, our, our, our status, having things is more better and more satisfying than, than God. I mean, that's a big one around here, right, where we live? That's a big one around here in South Orange County. That's a big one for us. You see, in Matthew 19, there's, there's this, this young, rich, and powerful guy who comes up to Jesus, and he's kind of a great picture of this worship of success. He's this young, rich, and powerful guy. He comes up to Jesus and in Matthew 19, and he's this guy that's sort of like the poster child of success as we define it in like the Western world. He's both wealthy and he's powerful. He's young. He's admired. He's the kind of guy that other people say like, man, I wonder what it would be like to be like him for a day, right? He's that kind of guy. And this guy, he, the, the rich young ruler is what, what you know, we, we know him as uh, in the scriptures. This rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to get eternal life? I follow many of the commandments of God, but what do I lack? And here's Jesus' response to him. Look at it. He says in Matthew 19, he, Jesus responds and he says, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, what you need is poverty of earthly riches. That's what you need. That's what this guy needs. And look, look, his point is not that having money is a problem. Like, we're not anti-having money. 
all right? Like, the point is not that having money is a problem. Like, Job, in the Old Testament, Job was considered blessed for being both righteous and rich. The Bible says that he was blessed for being righteous and also rich. Calls him a blessed man. Solomon asked and prayed to God for wisdom, and God responds and says, look, I'll give you wisdom and wealth. And so, look, money is not the problem. The problem is when you make money your God. When you make stuff or status your God, where this guy, like he'd taken a good thing like money that was supposed to be stewarded for God, he'd taken a good thing like money and he put it in a bad place at the center of his being. The place that determined his value. At the place that he looked for satisfaction. And notice that Jesus invites this guy to follow him. Like the Son of God invited him to follow him. He's like, look, if you want to follow me, he's like, because Jesus knows where this guy's heart is at. He's like, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to leave your idols behind. You're going to have to leave them behind if you want to follow me. And verse 22 tells us, when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, he was sad. He was like bummed when Jesus responded this way because he's like, and the, the, you know, why? Because it says he had great possessions. In other words, he could not see that Jesus was greater than his possessions. He did not see Jesus as ultimately great, as ultimately good and satisfying. Instead, his earthly treasure was good and satisfying, like from his point of view. That's what was satisfying and not Jesus. You see, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus warns us not to store our treasure where moth and rust will destroy. You heard that verse? He says, don't store up your treasure where moth and rust destroy. You know, like those moths, those bugs that fly around? Uh, it's like their wings are made out of paper, right? Like they, they fly around, they lay eggs in like the, the new shirt you just bought, and then like the little larvae just eats all these, all these holes in it, right? Like Jesus is saying that your earthly treasures are like, are like that, easily destroyed. You see, nothing is more worse and disappointing than coming home and try, look, going for, looking forward to to, to something that you just bought and that you're looking forward to enjoying and finding out that it's been partially eaten, right? Like nothing's more disappointing than that. And, and Jesus is saying that like when we store our, 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 when we put our stock, look for satisfaction in our earthly treasures, like it's like that. It's easily destroyed. Earthly riches will fade. Fame and status will fade. Uh, Jim Carrey, another great philosopher from the 90s, um, Jim Carrey, he, he got this. He has this, this quote that he shared years ago that just kind of hits the nail on the head when he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. You see, what he's getting at is that there is something beyond feeling significant. There is something beyond security and riches. Like, he already has all that, right? 
I mean, it's Jim Carrey, right? He has all those things. He's got a successful and this charmed life, but he knows there's got to be something more. He knows there's got to be something more because those things don't satisfy. He's experienced that firsthand. And so Jesus calls to that young, rich, influential man, and he says, look, if you want to follow me, give it all up and follow me. That's my prayer for us today as well, like for me and for you to see that because Jesus is good, he's good because we trust that he is good. We trust that, that you know, all he wants to do is to detach us from empty things that will just leave us hungry, and he wants to attach us to the true source of life, which leads us to our last point, which is the liberating truth that God is good and satisfying. God is good and satisfying. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. You see, God himself is the perfect meter of all our needs, right? He meets all our needs. Remember, Jesus is the fountain, (coughs) the fountain of living water. But Jesus is the fountain of living water that makes it so that we never spiritually thirst again. When it says that he's a fountain of living water, he's saying, look, I've got the thing your soul thirsts for. See, this isn't just water that your body needs, but it's water that satisfies you in your soul, in the deepest yearnings of your life, living water. Like when you're parched and when you thirst, Jesus satisfies your soul in that way. He's living water. It says he's the bread of life that makes it so that we'll, we'll never hunger. He's our eternal rest. He's the prince of peace, the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, all of these physical needs are meant to functionally help point us to the greater need that we have in Jesus so that we know I don't have to look elsewhere to be satisfied. Look, especially around like where we live, like we can go embarrassing amounts of time without expressing or admitting our need for God and his presence. Most, most of us, like we're quick to acknowledge that in the morning, right? When we pray in the morning, we're starting our day like, God, I need you. Give me my, like, my daily bread. Like I'm here for like, I want to serve you. I want to, you know, expand your kingdom. I want to be used for you. I want to serve you. We acknowledge that in the morning. We acknowledge that in that bed, like before we go to bed at night, but we forget it in between, Right? when we're being thrown at with, with stuff and we're feeling like we're, we're not in, in control, we're feeling so dissatisfied, we forget that. You see, when we're driven by the idols of power, of, of comfort and success, then we divert our eyes from the brilliant creator then to, for the dull light of created things. We were made to enjoy God's transforming power. We were made to marvel at his successes, at his work. We were made to enjoy the comfort of the Prince of Peace. You see, the scriptures say that he's the living water that that quenches our soul's deepest longings. And if we go anywhere else, it's like drinking mud when you could be drinking from the spring of purified water. There's this classic C.S. Lewis quote. 
where he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world, that nothing in creation can can satisfy, then the most probable explanation, the most rational explanation is that we were made for another world. It's the kind of world that we had in Genesis 1. It's the kind of world that we lost in Genesis 3. But it's the kind of world that Jesus is ushering back in through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, we were made to find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus, but instead we search for it in other things. We could say we're searching for salvation apart from the Savior. Just like Adam and Eve believed the lie that God is holding out on us, we're easily deceived too. But our idols keep proving to us that they're unreliable. They leave us empty. They leave us craving. They leave us hungry for more. This is why John Calvin called the human heart a perpetual factory of idols. He's saying, look, the heart's going to make an idol out of anything. And when that doesn't satisfy, it'll just make a bigger idol of that thing or it'll make an idol out of this other thing over here. It's like an idol factory because our idols never satisfy We move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so what is our hope? What is our hope from this? What is our hope from the trappings of idolatry, from from the burn of dissatisfaction? What is our hope from the trappings of turning to other things for our satisfaction? Look, our hope is actually not moderation. It's actually not even running from, other idol, from our idols, from our false saviors. Because again, the human tendency is just to run from one idol to the next. And so the answer is to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is to run to Jesus, the truly good and truly satisfying one. Because only God can satisfy in a true and lasting way. Only God can satisfy in a true and lasting way. Like, read Jeremiah 2 with me, verse 12 and 13. The prophet is speaking to God, is speaking, and he says, there's this message for the heavens. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at, at this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, Jeremiah says that this is the kind of thing that appalls the heavens. The host of heavens is when God's people forsake him, the fountain of the living water, and instead they turn to these broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so the question for us is, are you appalled that anyone would do this? Do you join the heavens in being appalled at that? Are you appalled that anyone would choose empty idols over the living God? It should appall you. It should upset you. That should appall us. See, because he has given us life, true life, and we forsake him. He's the spring of living water, the very source of life. He's the one who delivered us, and yet we reject him. We turn to these idols 
these broken cisterns to try and make a life for ourselves, but they just hold no water. They leave us wanting. It holds no life. See, we hunger. We thirst for true joy and satisfaction. We yearn to be made whole, but all we see is around us is just a world that groans along with us that also hungers for that. Hungers to be made whole. Because created things are broken things just like us. That's why Jesus came, to make all things new. Because this world is broken and we are broken. So why would we turn to broken things to make us feel whole? If we want salvation, if we want joy, then we must seek it from somewhere or something that is other than us. Other than this world. Something from outside of this world. Salvation can only come from someone who is cosmologically other than us. Who's transcendent in every way. You see, the good news for us this morning is that that Savior exists. He exists. Jesus is the good and beautiful one. He's the God that we long for, that we are, can be satisfied in. In Psalm 27 David is having this bad day. He's got enemies coming up against him. He's got people hating on him. His family's betrayed him. His life is at risk. He's having one of the worst days of his life. And in Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, we get a glimpse at this prayer he prays on that day. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing that I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, and that one thing is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you had one prayer request, that if you asked, God would do good on delivering it, is that the one thing you'd ask for? See, many of us will say yes to that, but day to day, that's not the one thing we ask for. That's not the one thing we seek after. That's not the one thing that we functionally believe will truly satisfy us. You see, but we can't truly worship God and find our ultimate satisfaction in other things. If we're truly worshiping the God of the Bible, the fountain of living water, then by necessity, we'll look for our satisfaction in Him. We'll see Him as the ultimate good, as the ultimate source of life. You can't simultaneously worship Jesus Christ, the creator of God, and be addicted to your status before other people, to pornography, or to some substance. Like, you can't. You can't worship the creator while worshiping the created. It's either one or the other. And so look, for, for, like for, for, for most of us, like our problem is not just behavioral. It's not just that you need to change the way you act. What needs to happen is you need to alter the God that you truly worship. You need to change what you believe about him. In John 14, it tells us that Jesus is the way the truth, and, and what? The life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the life. In other words, life is found in him. 
truth is found in him. Purpose and beauty is found in him. In the words of John Stott, Jesus is reality. He is reality. He makes sense of it all. He makes sense of life. He makes sense of both the greatness of all cosmic creation, and he also makes sense of the inner, deepest yearnings and longings of the human soul. In other words, there's no need for us to turn elsewhere because we know Jesus, who is reality. You see, Jesus experienced brutal brokenness on the cross when he stood there in our place for our sins. Jesus experienced brutal brokenness on the cross so that we could experience what it means to be finally whole. Turn to him. We should turn to to him, the way, the truth, and the life, and he will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Philippians 4.19. I'll read this, and then we'll close. At the end of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he prays for them and he says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So let's trust him to do that. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening. 